It's a blessing to meet together in public worship. You know, we've heard that all of our life, and it's the truth, but I think sometimes we think about the, the here and now when we say that. And I just want to emphasize the, the consequences or the spiritual blessings we receive from giving God the glory. And we have an opportunity to do that again today. For most of us, the Christmas story is on our minds. So I want to read in Luke 2 from the 40th verse to the end and maybe have a few comments about that. And the child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us. Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Jesus grew up the son of a carpenter. And I suppose maybe in old Israel it was more the case than it is now. But many times sons followed in their father's footsteps. And it would have been reasonable to think that that's the way it was because he grew up with it. He was very familiar with his father's trade. He lived with it, and he was taught the way of the father. And I suppose sons in that day would have been around home more maybe than they are today. The, the father was identified to many people by what he did. If you think back, uh, Alexander the coppersmith, for instance, there's probably many more, but he was, he was the coppersmith, and so everyone knew who it was. He was identified by what he did, and the sons grew into that identity. They could bring shame to their father, and we think of, uh, I think it was Samuel's sons, or they could bring honor. And one way to honor the father was to continue on 
with the Father's livelihood and be honest and have integrity. That was one way to honor the Father. Um, I want to th- turn to, I mean, I want to think about the 49th verse for just a minute. The question of his parents. Now, after we've thought about these things, about how it was very common and typical for a son to follow in his father's footsteps, when the parents found him, they asked this question. How is it that you sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? I searched for a little bit this morning in my own mind and maybe some other people's comments. Why did the parents not understand that? And I don't have that answer. I don't know why it was a question. Mary would have understood who Jesus' real father was of all people. So what was the question? I want to turn to St. John 8, verse 39, and present here something that is a little bit harder for us to understand. Maybe we think we can understand the question that Joseph and Mary asked Jesus. But here's something maybe that isn't quite so easy to understand. John 8, 49 says, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and you do dishonor me. And I seek not mine own glory, but there is one that seeketh and judgeth. Verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast the devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, and thou sayest, If a man keep my saying, he shall never taste death. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Who makest thou thyself? And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honors me, of whom ye say that he is your God. And ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. Hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. You know what? I'm sorry, I've got the wrong verse there. St. John 8, well maybe 839, and I started at 49, I'm sorry. St. John 39 through 44. I apologize. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father Jesus. Abraham is our father Jesus. Is that where I just started? 
Okay. Um, I'm going to skip to 44. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. So I think the question today is, who is your father? And you are about your father's business. That's the point I'm trying to make. You are about your father's business. Your deeds are a manifestation of who your father is. I think that's what Jesus was trying to say. And I think it's time for us to go to prayer. Let's just bow our heads with a word of prayer. Just saying, if that isn't love, all that Jesus has done for you and I in heaven is not a myth. <clears throat> One time many years ago, we had a landscape client. And as often happens, when you first meet uh, the, the people, the couple, you start to learn some things about them, and particularly the lady this, that was here in this home, uh, because she grew up in China. And very quickly, we began to hear her life story. But she, she was born in China, but she grew up in South Vietnam. And she was among the boat people. And if you were alive at that time, you understand what that meant. That when South Vietnam was overrun by the communist North Viet Cong, people fled for their lives, if possible, or else they were slaughtered. And there was a whole group of people, thousands of people, that got on any boat that they could get on, and they took out across the ocean. And she was in one of those boats as a child with her family. And there's a lot of details to that. <clears throat> but in talking to her further, we find out that her sense of thinking, her sense of religion, was a medley, a blend of every Asian, every Eastern religious philosophical thought you could imagine. I mean, there were Buddha statues in the yard, and there were spirits in the trees and the rocks, and there was Christian things thrown into. So it was a real mix of all kinds of things. Now, from the very beginning, when we first presented the drawing to her, and this was going to be a complex patio, walkways, and landscaping situation, from the very beginning, we had told her and, and agreed upon that there was going to be a particular tree removed. She knew that. And we talked about it on a number of different occasions. It was right in the middle of, of a certain pattern of the walk areas and so forth. And there was no way to work around it because we were going to be raising the grade. We, we weren't going to be able to save that tree. And so we told her from the very beginning we're going to be re removing that tree. And the day before we did that, I reminded her in the afternoon, tomorrow morning we're going to re be removing this tree. And there were no objections. But the next morning when we got there to the job, she was obviously distraught. So she hadn't slept all night. She'd been crying all night because she didn't want to lose the tree of life. This discussion had never happened before. <clears throat> and she had bought this little tree at some nursery, and the man was an Asian person also. And, he, and she was thinking, this is a very familiar-looking tree, something I remember from, from where I came from. And he goes, well, yeah, that's the tree of life. So she bought it. She planted it. And it was growing up, it was three or four inches caliper near the ground, and it was maybe 10, 12 feet tall, and so forth. It, to her, it was the tree of life. 
and she was totally distraught that we were going to tear out the tree of life. And of course, coming from a Christian point of view, she's hitting a button pretty strong with me too. Now, ultimately, I don't even know if that's what it was, if she was just lying because of what I found out later about her. Maybe she was making it all up because she knew I was a Christian and maybe I would stop and not tear out that tree. But anyway, we agreed I would dig up and transplant the tree of life back in the corner of the yard. No guarantees. But I did. And she was satisfied with that, that I would transplant the tree of life. And we went on with the project. Brother Bill, I know you can uh, relate to what I, I was experiencing that day. Today's title is to keep the way of the tree of life, which is the last phrase of the last verse in the third chapter of Genesis. You may want to open up to the second and third chapters of Genesis. If you can already reflect on what that, where this phrase comes, this is at the moment when Adam and Eve are being driven out of the Garden of Eden after sin. And cherubims are placed at the gate of the Garden of Eden with a flaming sword that turned in every, every direction to keep or to guard the way of or to the tree of life. Because the tree of life has been described here. We're going to think about this a little bit today because the tree of life also ends up showing up in Revelation chapter 22, well, several places in Revelation. We almost, we did sort of cover that a little bit in today's lesson. This tree of life is somehow in the middle of everything from the beginning to the end. And it was very significant, very important that God would keep or to guard the way of the tree of life. Now, a few places here in Genesis chapter 2. It tells us here in Genesis 2.8, And the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. This is what's significant in this little phrase right here, because after chapter 1, you had where God created all these things. He made he, these things. He formed these things. He saw this. He spoke that. He ended all of his work. But here is a unique word. It says, after he had created the perfect place, in a place unspoiled by sin, perfect environment, and he made man and woman in place, placed them in that place. And then it says that he planted a garden east in Eden. And in that word planted is the, is the word or the meaning of transplant as well. That somehow this special, this garden of Eden was a special, there were things about it that were transplanted from somewhere, which I will tell, clue you in right now, from heaven, that God brought from heaven the tree of life and put it in the midst of the garden of Eden, in this unique garden that was on a perfect planet. And God came there and dwelled with them and walked with them and talked with them. And this is where God dwelled. And in the middle of that was this tree called 
the tree of life. In verse 9 it says, And out of the ground made the Lord God to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life, also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now you know also a few verses down at verses 16 and 17, it says this, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat. Now take note of that thought. He's telling them, every tree that is in, in this garden, in this garden of eating, you can freely eat of it, including the tree of life. Did you ever catch that? It's, it's not in there, in that phrase, but he, he gave them freedom to eat of anything that was in that garden, except one tree. That tree was called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he says in this verse 16, 17, thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. So there you have where God has created a perfect place, a perfect planet, and a perfect universes, and all the beauty and all the perfection of the systems, and he put man and woman there, and told them they could have of anything they wanted, and to eat freely of all of those things. But in all of that, he, put, he positioned a test for Adam and Eve. First he said that to Adam, and then later we have to assume that either God explained it further to Eve, or Adam explained it to Eve, but anyway, they all they walked and talked together. So the test was there. You can have of anything that's in this place, except do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that you do that, you will die. And you know that that's what Satan picked up on. Genesis 3.22. And the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now what happened? What happened is, was in between there was the temptation of Satan coming to Adam and Eve and, and talking about that particular tree. And he said, what did God really say? Oh, no, you're not going to die if you eat of that. You're going to become like gods. And you're going to know things. You're going to know good and evil. And that was the temptation. And Adam and Eve had to make a choice. And they chose to die that day. Did they die physically? No. But they died spiritually. And this is why the sin nature comes from Adam and Eve right on down through all of us. Because they chose to die spiritually when they ate of that tree that they had been told, commanded to not eat of that tree. And it comes down to a question comes down to that, that test. Are you going to be willing to obey and to listen and to follow God, or are you going to go your own way? Ultimately, we, we all face that kind of question. We all face that kind of test in life. Are you going to run your own life? Are you going to run everything? Are you going to make all the decisions, or are you going to yield your life unto Jesus Christ and unto God and allow the Holy Spirit to indwell you? It's the same question, same test for every one of us. And so... The end of chapter, chapter 3, the Lord is talking there. The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us. Again, one of those conversations of these multiple parts of God talking together about what has happened here. To know good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and live forever. 
Now God's talking about that tree of life that's in the middle of the garden. He says, we don't want them, now that they know good and evil, we don't want them to be able to eat of the tree of life and live forever. And so there has to be a consequence. And he goes on. Verse 23, and therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And verse 24 says, so he drove out the man. It wasn't enough to simply say, now go, get out of here. Adam and Eve were reluctant. Adam and Eve didn't want to go. Adam and Eve knew that they were living, walking, working, eating, enjoying the presence of God in every possible perfection. They didn't want to leave there. They had already, maybe already started to grasp that the world was changing outside of the Garden of Eden. And so the Lord God, he had to drive them out of there because they already realized they made the worst mistake. He drove out the man. He placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. That phrase has struck me as such a sort of a summary of all of the rest of the Bible and all of the rest of human history, even what hasn't, hasn't happened yet, to keep the way of the tree of life. Now, I don't want you to get confused here. Ultimately, life, eternal life, comes from Jesus Christ and all that he has done for us. But the tree of life is a, is a presence, is, a, is an entity, is, is an image that is in the heaven, is in the place where God wants to dwell with men forever. And it, it has something very radically to do with, with living forever. But eternal life comes from Jesus Christ. So I don't want to set up an idol here or something that the tree of life is somehow the only source of eternal life. But it is sort of a symbol of God's eternal blessing of life eternally is going to pour out on people. And so this is like a summary of the history of the rest of the world, the rest of the Bible is all about keeping or guarding the way of the tree of life. And I think every one of us has probably said to ourselves, why did God do that? Why did God put that test there? Why didn't he just leave it perfect like it was? Why? I think surely every person has asked that question. Wouldn't that have been a whole lot better if we had just stayed in the Garden of Eden or stayed on a perfect planet and, and not known, ever known sin or evil in any way. And what it really comes down to is how would we know that we needed to be saved if we already lived in perfection? In God's love for us, and ultimately, this is God's motivation in all things. It's his love for, for us. In God's love for us, he wanted us to love him in our free will. 
to make a decision to love him. He gave man the opportunity, and, man and Adam and Eve chose death and chose to walk away and chose to walk the way of evil. And all of the world was cursed because of it. And all that struggle that we have lived through helps us to understand that we cannot save ourselves and we need to be saved. Because this is awful what we're doing and what we're living in. And God wanted men and women to understand that. And so we went into that and the world was cursed and men were cursed because then it would bring us to a realization there has to be something better than this. And God and the Holy Spirit is coming into your life and calling you into his kingdom and saying there is eternal life, there is a heaven and there is a hell. There is going to be judgment and you have a choice. And it comes down to that same kind of, the same kind of commandment God gives to us <clears throat> to not eat of that tree. Are we going to be able to respond and to follow him and to turn to him for salvation? Ultimately, that's what it comes down to. You know, also, you think about as, as the history went on, the Old Testament developed there. Think about the tabernacle and another little picture that comes out of that. In the tabernacle, in the center, in the Holy of Holies of the tabernacle was the Ark of the Covenant. And it, had, it was a box. It was a box that contained very significant things. And there was a lid on it, and it was a seat called the, the Mercy Seat where God's mercy was still continuing. Think about it when he, when he cast men out of that, the garden and the way forward is mercy. The way forward was God's mercy pouring out upon men and women to say, I'm not going to destroy you. I'm going to give you an opportunity to be saved. And his mercy continues into the end of the tabernacle there and you have the mercy seat and what overshadowed that was the cherubims again. Cherubim raising up their wings over top of that. The cherubims are often associated with the presence of God where he dwells. So it was there at the Garden of Eden. The cherubims guarded that gate and guarded that way. The cherubims were over the mercy seat in the Ark of the Covenant inside the tabernacle and later in the temples that were there. <clears throat> God continuing to keep the way, to show, to demonstrate to create the, all the lessons of life through the children of Israel to show that there is going to be a way. There's going to be a way of atonement. There's going to be a way of, of everlasting life. He's going to keep that way open. And we come to the time that we celebrate this time of year, the birth of Jesus Christ, the miraculous birth of the Messiah who was prophesied on so many different levels of his birth and his life and his death. And all those prophecies came together and were fulfilled in Jesus Christ because this is the continuation of keeping the way, of guarding the way, and presenting the way unto eternal life. God's <clears throat> plans continue to be worked out throughout all those things. Then we come... to the night before Jesus went to the cross. He said a lot of things, and many, many chapters in John and different books there are written about what Jesus talked about with his apostles that last night. But in one place, 
Thomas is talking to him. He said, I, wait a minute, I don't understand. I don't understand the way. I don't understand where you're going. I don't understand the way how to get there and all that. And Jesus turns to him in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Still continuing, <clears throat> the manner of keeping the way unto eternal life is through Jesus Christ. And he described himself very specifically here. I am the way. I'm the way which this is going to happen. I'm the way of salvation. I'm the way that, that we are going to reconcile people unto God through me and through my death and resurrection. Jesus is the way, and he's the truth about it. And he is, he personifies eternal life. But notice how that lays next to the phrase out of Genesis to keep the way of the tree of life. God's thinking continuing right on through there of his portrayal of how he wants to bring about eternal life and salvation through God. As we turn over into Revelation, you're going to start to see some more references to this. But before we get to this, let me stop there for just a moment. Because <clears throat> there are some other passages that I want to share with you. you. You may want to turn to this, but I'm just going to briefly go through a few passages to help us understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Because this is the plan of the way, of keeping that way under the tree of life. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9, it says this in part of that verse, in, in he, Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Jesus Christ became the author. He wrote eternal salvation. It's going to be given to all those, it says it very clearly here, that obey him. See, it's just like that test back for Adam and Eve. He goes right back to the same thing. All of those who obey me are going to be given eternal life. Jesus is the author of that. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So Jesus Christ is the one who redeemed us, who paid the price, like pulling us out of slavery unto sin. He pulled us out of that. And he redeemed us. <clears throat> and he became a curse for us. It says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us unto God. Jesus Christ, totally just, totally without sin, he took the place of the unjust and satisfied all that was needed to pay for our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus Christ was made sin for us so that we could be made into the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ is the way. He, he was the only manner in which that could be accomplished, that he was without sin, yet he became sin. He was made sin for us so that we could be made into the righteousness of God and be accepted in heaven for life eternal. Ephesians chapter 2. I invite you to turn your Bibles there to Ephesians chapter 2. Let's just read just a few verses together. 
to see more about this. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins. And that's, a, that's a, an appropriate description of you and I, that we were dead. See, this is the same thought. Adam and Eve chose death in that test. And we are considered dead in our sins. And you have the quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us. It always goes back to love. That's all the reason, the motivation of God, of why he did things, why Jesus did things, because of the, the great love that he had toward us and his richness in mercy. That's why he kept the way unto eternal life. Verse 5, and even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now verse 7 has always been a unique verse to me. I didn't understand it. And I still don't understand it. But think about what it's portraying here. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Now, I like to underline and mark a lot of things in, in the text. But that verse, I've never underlined anything. Because it is so bewilderingly, bewilderingly amazing to think about heaven. Here is a description of heaven, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace. What is it going to be like when, when God unveils the riches of his grace unto us? We were talking about heaven a little bit this morning, and it begins to, to, to spark our imagination. We can't even hardly even begin to think about those things, and yet God in all of his glory is going to light an amazing place but part of that is going to be the, the riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. And all of that is talking about two words that we often talk about, God's mercy and God's grace. Why didn't he just give up on Adam and Eve when they failed the test? Because he also knew about all of us, too. And he wanted to provide a way of salvation, wanted to provide a way that we could have eternal life if we would choose to follow him. And it's all in mercy and it's all in grace. And, and as we come to heaven, all of that is going to explode on the scene. This is why I wanted you to come and be with me forever. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. <clears throat> but what an amazing picture there. <clears throat> and then as we go into open up into in the book of Revelation, we begin to get little images and the tree of life figures in that as well. Let's go back to that now. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7. This is in the letter to the Ephesians. At the end of that, at the end of every one of those seven letters, there was a promise given to the overcomers. You remember that? 
The overcomers are the ones who are believers, the ones who have overcome Satan, who have overcome sin because of Jesus Christ. And he said there's a promise to everyone who overcomes. And in, the, in that first one, in 2.7, it says, To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Somehow, God has transplanted again the tree of life that was in the Garden of Eden, somewhere maybe in the Middle Eastern area of this world, and he plucked it back up, and he transplanted it back into heaven, into the paradise of God. You remember the man that was dying on the cross next to Jesus? He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he looked at him, he said, this day, you will be with me in paradise. When that man died, he was in, that pla- in the middle of paradise. In the middle of that place is the tree of life. That's part of the scene. But it's an amazing sta- structure standing in the middle of the street and in the, on both sides of the river. And we'll get into that just a little more here. <clears throat> so you go to the end of Revelation, Revelation 22, verses 1 and 2, and, he's, and here's the description. And he showed me a river, pure, a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. I've tried over and over again trying to picture what that is. Trying to picture the street and the river, and the tree on both sides of the... And that's just beyond our imagination to quite picture it, but it is astounding, it is amazing of what's going to be there, and what we're going to see. And it's going to be that same situation where the tree of life is going to be and the fruit is to be eaten. It's going to be part of the experience in heaven is to eat of that fruit and something different comes out about every 30 days or so. And it's there for everybody. And there's some others who describe that. Well, there's lots of trees lining both sides of the river, and there's all kinds of other ways to describe this. But this is the description. In that new heaven, in that new earth, in that new Jerusalem, that you have this tree of life prominently positioned. Because God thought from the very beginning that it was essential.
talk about what they believe about those things. But a lot of times, people that are in that kind of situation, they try to play the game of stump the Christian. How do you stump the Christian? What question? in prayer. Does someone have prayer requests they want to mention at this time?